to this. You know what? And in the ring with Dan and Benny, hey, brother, man, hey, he's about the most cat. I just love him to death. I love you. Thanks for having me. Hey, you're the best. I'm telling you, brother, in the ring with Dan and Benny. Yeah. We love you. Thank Woo. you so much, Dan. Oh, yeah. Friends and welcome to another edition of Dan and Benny in the Ring. I'm Dan Spasciano, joined as always by the BS Express himself, Benny Scala. Benny, I've said it a hundred times on this show, no pun intended, that uh, per Apple Podcast stats, the average sports entertainment podcast lasts three episodes. This is episode 100. 100 episodes, not too bad for a little spinoff that started with a couple of friends, two microphones and a laptop, huh? Then the first episode, you said, you know, you asked, you introduced me, you said, how am I doing? And I said, not really that good because uh, I said my girlfriend was hooked up to a machine that kept her alive, the refrigerator. And for the better part of the last 99 episodes, I've said some ridiculous things. So now I'm going to say something very profound to redeem myself. And that is time waits for no man and neither does a hooker. And... <laughs> Did you know oh. that Santa, and Santa Claus actually likes hookers? Did you know that? I, what I does did he not. say when he every place he goes? What does he say? Ho oh, ho no. ho! He wants a fatal four way with three hookers. I mean, come on! Nobody ever, nobody noticed that, but me. Oh, only you, Benny. I'm glad you, you saved you saved the 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 piece de resistance <laughs> of your jokes for our hundredth episode. Hey man, whatever but it takes. I, I I said it at the top of the show. This is a huge deal for us, and really, I mean, we have had uh, some Hall of Famers, some legends, amazing talents uh, across the spectrum. You always talk about, you, you like to say how guests have the slash, wrestler, slash, whatever. I, I Sometimes slashes don't do justice, and when you branch the pantheon of, when you branch the pantheon of talents, of names, uh, there is few I can think of of almost no one who deserves more slashes and and bigger praise than our guest Benny. This is our hundredth episode special edition. Why don't you tell everybody who we've got on the phone with us tonight? Well, honestly, I could actually spend the next hour just introducing our guest, but uh, an Olympic athlete, one of the strongest men in in the history of the world, uh, a member of several weightlifting and wrestling Hall of Fames, and arguably one of the top five heels in the history of professional wrestling. And I'm absolutely thrilled to inter introduce our guest, Mr. Ken Patera. Uh, Mr. Patera, welcome to uh, Dan and Benny in the ring. Well, it's my pleasure that uh, you guys asked me to be on your 100th episode. I'm, uh, I'm extremely uh, happy about that. The pleasure is all ours. I'm super excited to get a chance to talk to you. I know you hear this all the time, but since as, as early as I could remember watching television, I've been a fan of yours. So this is a huge deal for me personally as well. Well, thank you. Uh, how old are you? 39. Well, shit. <laughs> I was on TV before you were even born. That's very true. 
and then yeah. some of the earliest the some of the earliest tapes of oh you haven't seen this yet check this stuff out you were on all of those as well yeah. benny benny is not is not kidding the the level of of heel work and we'll get into it among the other many other things i remember watching the strongman competitions with with you uh, and and Ferrigno and Columbu Benden rebar, which is still incredible that that level of strength. And it's just, it, yeah. it's like I said, it is a huge deal for me. Yeah. You know, the guy that won that uh, first one, I, I only competed in the first one and uh, I had hurt my back in uh, Boston garden. I was uh, in a lumberjack match with Bobby Backlund. And I took a bad bump over the top and just my back completely went out. And uh, that World's Strongest Men contest is only four weeks away. Well, I, you know, I really didn't give it much thought. I said, well, hell, I'll be all right by then. Well, I wasn't. And my back, my, my back was screwed up for about a month. And then I got out there and I screwed it up again. And uh, out of the 10 events, I only did uh, five and still took third. But, uh, you know, I, you know, the promoter, uh, uh, what was his name? Uh, He won the gold medal in the 1956 Olympics in the hammer throw, Harold Conley. Well, Harold went through a, a lot to get this dream of his up, uh, you know, being, you know, the world's strongest men contest. And he worked uh, for about two years to put that whole thing together. And then he finally got a sponsor, Bank of America Corporation out in San Francisco. And um, so uh, I was the first one he contacted. I, I said, well, how many guys are you going to have competing this thing? He says, 10. I said, well, how many do you have? He said, none. (laughs) (laughs) So he, yeah, he said, you'll be the the first one. I said, well, I'll help you out, Harold. Uh, Harold had been an English teacher out there in Southern California for about 20, 25 years. So I said, I'll help you out. Uh, I said, we'll get it cleared with the WWF and uh, we'll be on our way. And uh, he appreciated that. And I, I told him, I said, Harold, I'm not the Ken Patera from 1972. And he said, that's all right. I said, I, I haven't lifted any heavy weights in five, six years. And he says, well, hell, you're still one of the strongest guys in the world. I said, well, that I am. So <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not guaranteeing anything. So when we got out there, and, uh, my best friend at the time, Bruce Wilhelm, he wound up winning it. And he had been in the Olympics up in Montreal uh, the year before. And uh, he weighed like 340, I think. But uh, a solid machine 240 or 280 or what the hell am I telling you, 340. And uh, he was a, he still is a good friend of mine. As a matter of fact, I talked to him last week. Uh, he calls me three, four times a, a month. And uh, I don't call him. 
because I never know where he's going to be. He might be in Europe. He might be in Japan or, you know, wherever. And he knows I'm always here. And uh, so that's how that works. Yeah. <laughs> that's a great story. I love that. Yeah. He, you know, we, we ask every guest uh, how they first discovered professional wrestling. I mean, you growing up in the Pacific Northwest, the Oregon territories, you know, so much came out, especially Portland, so much came out of there. Uh, when yeah. did the wrestling bug sting you, and and what kind of wrestling were you exposed to growing up? Well, uh, I was 10 years old, and uh, my dad asked uh, me and my brothers, uh, two younger brothers, if we wanted a television set. And, of course, we all went wild. Of course, you know, nobody in the neighborhood had a TV. So dad went up to Montgomery Ward and bought a television set. I think it was a, a Zenith. Yeah, Zenith uh, television set, brought it home, got it all set up. And that was in 1953. And so uh, us boys were sitting in the living room watching it. Uh, it was on a Saturday morning. And we're watching the test tube because that's the only thing that would come on the screen was a <laughs> test, test tube. So first, we were amazed at that. And so we're watching this test tube. And then the, uh, you know, they didn't have programming like they do now, of course, you know, this a, in the pioneer days, just a covered wagon bullshit, you know. So anyway, we're watching uh, the TV, and all of a sudden, uh, the 50, uh, in, the Olympics were in 52. This is 1963, but the 52 Olympics had never been shown on TV before. So this was their inaugural uh, uh, deal uh, there in Portland. So we're sitting there, and one of the first uh, events to come up was uh, weightlifting and uh, to make a long story short uh, the guy that I was rooting for was the American and his name was Norbert Shamansky who I would later uh, become good friends with and get drunk with a few times and uh, of course when I was 13 then no I was 10 and he was, uh, oh God, I can't remember how old he was then. But anyway, um, he wound up winning the gold medal in his weight class. I think he was a 198 pound class at that time, but he eventually moved up to the heavyweight class in 1960 and 1964. And uh, uh, let's see, he went from winning a gold medal or no, he won two gold medals. And then in 1960, he won the silver medal. And then in 64, he was 42 years old. Well, shit, somebody 42 years old lifting uh, weights uh, was unheard of. <laughs> and so anyway, he wound up winning a bronze, which is third place. Uh, two Russians beat him. Um, so uh, that that was quite a... Uh, and that just amazed me because his technique and everything was flawless. And here he's 42 years old 
And, um, but we're talking about, uh, you want to know about the wrestling. Well, right after the, they showed the Olympics there in 1953 on TV, uh, the, the wrestling program, Portland Wrestling, came on TV, and I just fell in love with it. Well, being a 10-year-old, I'd never seen anything like that, you know. It was easy. So uh, me and my brothers, uh, I think we had a couple other friends over there, too. Because we started wrestling around in the living room, of course, breaking everything. And my mom came in with a broom and uh, <laughs> broke up. You know, beat us after death with that fucking broom. But, uh, you know, of course, we were just laughing at her, you know. Oh, what the hell is she going to do with the broom? Didn't matter. She could hit us with a goddamn steel bar. And uh, we went to felt it. But uh, anyway, that was my... Uh, 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 first taste of professional wrestling, 1953. Ken, moving ahead to high school. So you come from a family of superb athletes. You have two brothers who played in the NFL, one who actually went on to coach with the uh, yeah. Seattle Seahawks. And in high school, now this is, I, I was very surprised to learn this, that you actually did the uh, high jump and the high hurdles in high school before you hurt yeah. your ankle and you switched over to shot put. And then you also wrestled and played football. Um, yeah. Did you, of all of those things, w did you have a favorite? Well, I loved right, uh, running the high hurdles. And because I, I, I had a lot, lot of uh, spring in my legs, let's say. I could stuff a basketball when I was five foot ten. Wow. And uh, yeah. The first time I did it was the day I graduated from uh, grade school. Wow. Yeah. I was 13 years old. I, my legs were I was like a pogo stick. Uh, I amazed everybody about how, how high I could jump. And uh, so anyway, uh, uh, I got interested in uh, uh, basketball to start with. And my, uh, my, uh, uh, I could have started a fan club for this guy, Wilt Chamberlain. Oh yeah, yeah. And uh, I was a huge fan of Wilt, Wilt the Stilt. And uh, I knew I was never going to be seven foot tall or seven two. I think Wilt was eventually, but he was going to University of Kansas, and some uh, alumni down there bought him a Bentley. And the reason they bought him a Bentley, because he used to carry uh, a 300-pound set of weights around with him, and he needed a big trunk. And so he always had an Olympic set uh, with him at all times. And uh, he worked out like a madman all the time. He'd, he'd do the, you know, his arms are six feet long, for Christ's sake. You know, he wasn't... He wasn't any good at the Olympic lifts, but he liked to do squats and deadlifts and bench press, stuff like that, and power cleans he enjoyed doing. And uh, he was on the track and field team at that time, and he ran the high hurdles and high jumped uh, when he was uh, in college. And, uh, at, uh, and uh, I think... 
was I still? Oh shit, yeah, I'm still in high school. Christ, when he was in college, I was a, about a sophomore in high school, and so it, in, in a way, uh, I only saw him on TV once. You know, TV programming back in the fifties was shit. You know, they they didn't have any uh, way to. Uh, really, you know, cover uh, collegiate athletics or uh, pro football or anything else. It was very sparse. You know, they had a little bit here and there. So, uh, uh, Wilt was, uh, and then my big brother, Jack, he wound up being the head coach of the Seattle Seahawks in uh, 76. But prior to that, he was a defensive coach for uh, uh, the fearsome foursome out there in uh, Los Angeles for the Rams, yeah. And uh, then he went to uh, New York, uh, the Giants. Uh, Ellie Sherman had just been hired. He was the youngest head coach in the league at that time. And my brother was the youngest assistant coach in the league at that time. And uh, I think my brother, should I, how old was he? He was only like 28, 27 maybe. And uh, then, uh, uh, so it was LA Rams, New York Giants. Then he, uh, he wanted to uh, be with a friend of his in Minneapolis for some reason anyway. So he contacted, or no, Bud Grant had contacted him from the Minnesota Vikings and Bud, Bud Grant uh, was the head coach. But Bud Grant played football uh, with Vern Gagne over at the University of Minnesota back in 47 and 48. So uh, when uh, Jack uh, got picked up by the Minnesota Vikings and Bud Grant, he came out here to Minnesota and uh, uh, that's how he met Vern Gagne. And uh, so uh, my, I was talking with my brother one day. He said, what do you want to do after the Olympic Games? I said, well, I was thinking about professional wrestling. He says, well, have you decided specifically? And I said, well, um uh, I was working out with some weightlifters in Portland. They were also uh, uh, professional wrestlers. And they were training at this one gym, a Sam LePrinzi's gym. And uh, every professional wrestler that came through Portland, Oregon, which are by the end of thousands, that's where they all trained with Sam LePrinzi's gym. So anyway... Uh, I flew back to uh, Minneapolis and my brother says, well, you know, you said you wanted to be a professional wrestler. I have a guy here in Minneapolis. His name is Vern Gagne and he has a training camp and he's uh, the promoter and he's uh, the world champion and he's everything. And the people here in Minnesota love the guy which is true, you know, he was a, a hero. And so anyway, uh, my brother introduced, gets me introduced to Vern Gagne. And this is in like 69. 
1969, I think it was, or was it? Yeah, 69. So I went down uh, to the old Dockman Hotel where the wrestling uh, office was, and I, in Vern's office, uh, introduced myself and everything. He says, yeah, your brother called me. He said that you want to be a pro wrestler. I said, well, I'd like to give it a try. Well, what makes you think that you're tough enough to be a pro wrestler? And I says, well, I just know I am. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, he says, well, you're trained for the Olympics now and weightlifting. I said, yeah. So, well, what makes you think you're good enough to go to the Olympic Games? I said, well, I've set 64 national and international records so far, and I still have uh, almost two years left before the, or three years left before the 72 Olympic Games. And he said, okay. Uh, he said, God, I didn't know that you were that good. I said, oh, yeah, I am. I said, I, I hold all the American records and uh, whatnot. And so he signed me to a personal service contract because a, a regular athletic contract was illegal back in those days if you're an amateur wrestler or an amateur athlete. So we had to be careful there. The Olympic uh, Committee found out that I was receiving uh, money from a sponsor. They'd kick me out. They wouldn't allow me to compete. And that went for everybody, not just me. So anyway, uh, we got it covered up pretty good. And uh, uh, he sponsored me all the way through to the Olympic Games over there in Munich, Germany in 1972. And then when I got back to uh, uh, Minneapolis after the 72 Olympic Games, uh, I, I, I was roommates with Ric Flair at the time uh, before I even went to Germany. And uh, I was roommates with him uh, a year before that, too, because uh, I was uh, training for the Pan American Games down in Cali, Columbia. And so when I went down to Cali, Columbia, I set all the uh, Pan American Game records and won four gold medals uh, in that competition, the Pan American Games. So Rick was just bugging me for that whole, God, Ken, you got to introduce me to uh, Vern Gagne. Yeah, you know, I, I, I want to wrestle. I said, I know you do, Rick, for Christ's sake. I, I said, you were born to be a pro wrestler and you're going to be a pro wrestler. It just takes time. So uh, uh, when I got back from Munich, Germany, I, I got back to the house that Rick and I were sharing with a couple other guys and uh, half a dozen girls, I guess. Uh, <laughs> That's it? Yeah. Rick, oh, Rick was, uh, oh. That, that was just you, for Rick. Yeah, that's what I mean. I, 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 oh, Rick was after the pussy all the time. Oh, but, yeah. Uh, oh yeah, all the time. <laughs> I mean, it was. Uh, it started. It started early. <laughs> yeah, and but he was only twenty-one years old then. Wow. And uh, so, uh, when when we finally got into wrestling. Uh, uh, Rick didn't have to chase the girls anymore. They chased him. 
And uh, man, I, I remember Will Chamberlain came out with a book saying that he screwed uh, more than 10,000 girls. I read that book. Yes, he did. Yeah, yeah. Well, I think Rick beat him by about 5,000. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. 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 He was doing two, three girls a day and uh, cost him his marriage a few times, but he didn't really think much of the marriage deal anyway. Although he's, he's married now and uh, to this girl, Wendy, and I, I guess she was in the business for a little bit. Her dad, I think, was a big ice hockey uh, all-star up in Canada. But uh, anyway, uh, kind of losing my train of thought here. Ask me another question. <laughs> well, if we can uh, uh, kind of go back a little bit, you, you were talking about your Olympic trials and, and you know, this was, you kind of bounced from like the late 70s or excuse me, late 60s through the early 70s. You went to the 1968 Olympic trials for shot put uh, before redirecting your efforts to weightlifting. I mean, you know, yep. we've we've got we've got an hour for the show we could easily spend the rest of the show just talking about your your weightlifting and your time in the olympics gold medal in 1971 you talked about setting the records at the pan am games four consecutive weightlifting championships uh third place in the strongman competition in 1977 and correct me if i'm wrong you were the first american to clean and jerk 500 pounds right and I was also the first American to clean and press 500 pounds that still stands to this day. <laughs> and, that, uh, wow. yeah, yeah. I was the only American to ever press 500 pounds overhead, That's... not bench press shit. You know, I'm, yeah. this, this, this is the type of military press. You have to pick the weight up off the floor to your shoulders and then press it over your head. That's and incredible. Uh, yeah, I did that in the 70 in a meet down in San Francisco in 71. And then I did it again in 1972 at the Olympic trials in Detroit city. And um, the guy I told you about earlier from the 53 Olympic games, uh, Norbert Shemansky, mm -hmm. he, he was from Detroit. And I got a, oh, I got the best pitcher of all time. He's, he's, uh, he was backstage when I was warm, warming up uh, for my lifts. And uh, so when I was out on the weightlifting platform in front of a sold out house, um, uh, the, the main floor was sold out, the balcony was sold out. There's people trying to get in through the doors and everything. And so anyway, while I was uh, doing a military press, that's the first lift, uh, a photographer snapped a picture. And behind me, you can see Norbert with the curtain pulled back from the, from the stage and with his head sticking out, watching me do the military press. Man, I had that picture till today. Uh, yeah, that I mean, he was my hero. 
you know, 1953, I was 10 years old. You know, he was an Olympic champion. And, uh, yeah, so uh, after that meet, Norbert had a friend with him. We all went out and got drunker and shit. We uh, we were doing, uh, we were drinking beer and doing uh, shots of whatever he was buying. But uh, he couldn't buy the shit fast enough. I, you know, I didn't care. You know, the hotel was just a couple blocks away. But uh, anyway, Detroit down, and this thing was downtown uh, Detroit at the Masonic Temple uh, downtown. It was right across the street from the telephone company. And Christ, there was cop cars all over out there as uh, we were coming in. I said, what are all the cops for here in downtown Detroit? Ken, this is a horrible city. Uh, uh, the gangs run it. And so the uh, because of the weightlifting being down here, uh, the police department has extra uh, uh, duty cops on and undercover cops and everything else. I said, wow. And so anyway, uh, but what the girls that worked at the phone company, when they got off their, uh, their shift, they were escorted out to their cars by a cop. That's oh, how bad. It, yeah. That's how bad it was. Yeah. So anyway, uh, uh, but anyway, I, I asked Norbert, I said, Norbert, you ever come downtown here? Fuck no. He <laughs> said, I don't want to get shot by some stupid uh, acid head or junkie. I said, well, I don't blame you. <laughs> That's how bad downtown Detroit was then. And I think it's just, it's just as bad now. It's been that way for, well, since uh, the mid-60s. Wow. And here we are. So, what was that? Uh, Almost 60 years, yeah. yeah. Yeah, 60 years ago. And it's just been a a, a, a gang gang city, you know. Criminals, uh, junkies, uh, prostitutes. Uh, you know, it was just a terrible place. Um, except for the prostitutes. I was going to say, yeah, they... <laughs> They brighten it up a little bit. Yeah. 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 They, they got to make a living too. Absolutely. <laughs> but anyway, uh, yeah, that was, uh, and so, uh, I, I had a hell of a meet. I, I set, I think, I don't know how many records I set in that, uh, uh, meet, uh, the national, that was the national championships and the Olympic trials all rolled into one and if you won that then you you were automatically on the olympic team and so that's how the uh, team was uh uh you know made up of uh all the winners uh and it was uh, how many weight class i think there were nine weight classes back in those days and uh so uh, I think there's more more than that now. I think there's 12. Like every, every eight or 10 pounds, there was a new weight class. And uh, I'll tell you, some of those little guys could uh, move some iron. And uh, so anyway, uh, I, I pressed 
uh, 503 and I claimed jerk 506, I think it was. And I, I snatched, uh, I can't remember what I snatched, uh, three, 386 or something like that, 384. But anyway, uh, that was a, uh, a meet that uh, got me to the Olympics. And then I had one more meet about uh, six weeks before the Olympics. And I, uh, I clean and pressed uh, 503. I snatched uh, 386 and a half. And I uh, clean jerked uh, like 503 or 504, whatever it was. Anyway, I wound up with a total of 1396. And that was eight pounds ahead of Alexia from Russia. Wow. So I went into the Olympics with the highest total in the world that year. Unfortunately, I had a bum knee. And that knee acted up uh, about a month before the Olympics. And God, I was trying to find a doctor that could fix it. But they, the, I couldn't find a doctor that said they could fix it and guarantee me 100% because it was that bad. I mean, I just wore all the cartilage out of it. Mm. And my my knee, uh, my left knee was bone on bone. Oh. And I mean, it's pretty hard to lift world record weight uh, when you have a bad wheel. And uh, people said, uh, well, God, Ken, uh, what are you going to do? I said, well, I'm going to compete. I don't have any choice. I said, this is going to be my last meet. After the Olympics, I'm going to become a pro wrestler. Oh, my God. You got to give it four more years. I said, I already gave it four years. And I got an injured knee. If I go another four years and have another injury, I'm going to lose all that income. I'm $25,000 in debt, uh, thanks to the Amateur uh, Athletic Union here in the United States. And uh, and that was after Vern Gagne sponsoring me. I mean, it was a hundred bucks a week, but a hundred bucks a week is all I really needed to live on back in 1972. Right. right. Yeah, that's, how long ago was that? 50 years? 50 years. Yep. 50, yeah, 50 years ago. Uh, uh, and so I said, yeah, what the hell? I'm not going to go another four years and uh, get injured and not be able to, uh, you know, feed myself. You know, so I said, screw it. No, I'm going to become a pro wrestler. And uh, that's that's how I got into wrestling. I went back to Minneapolis and uh, contacted Vern, told him that I was back and that I I won everything. And uh, he says, yeah, I know. He said, I followed it. He said, good job. He said, now you have to go to the Olympics and uh, win everything there. I says, I will. I said, there's one problem. I got a bad knee. He says, yeah. First thing he asked me, he says, how's your knee? I said, it's fucked. <laughs> and he says, ah, you'll, you'll tough it out. You'll, you'll work, work through it. And I says, I know I will. So anyway, I didn't work through it. It just, it got so goddamn bad. I, I was, uh, 
uh, we're over Munich, you know, getting ready for the Olympics. We got there about eight days early. And uh, because my, uh, I was in the super heavyweight, so they did one weight class per day. So they did like the 123, 148, you know, 165, 181, 198, and so on and so forth. And so then the, the super heavyweight division, which I was in, we were on last, the last day of uh, competition. And so I, I wound up being in the um, 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 what the hell they call it? Uh, uh, the training room of the uh, West German, uh, because the United States, uh, they all they worked on was uh, uh, basketball players and uh, runners from the track and field team. That was it. I said, "Fuck you, assholes." And so uh, I went over, I, I met this girl that knew uh, one of the trainers uh, over at the West, West German compound. And their facility was about, I don't know, 10 times bigger than the American facility. And they had everything there. They had ultrasound machines. They had the, the dip tanks, you know, that were like, 15,000 degrees below zero. And uh, I guess they call them, but what do they call those? Uh, a plunge, plunge uh, tanks. And uh, so uh, I went over there. They did ultrasound on my knee. They gave me massages on my knee. And uh, then, uh, you know, the ice and cold packs and everything. They did that every day for uh, seven days prior to the Olymp to, prior to me competing. So the day comes for me to compete, September 5th, yeah, September 5th, 1972. What happens in 1972, September 5th at the Olympic Village? The, you guys uh, remember? Yeah, that, that oh, was yeah. The, the attack. Yeah, yeah, the... Uh, the the ragheads uh, from the Middle East uh, came over the back fence they uh, of the went, uh, uh, went after the Israeli athletes. Yeah, the Israeli the Israeli compound was right twenty feet from that back fence. While they scaled that in like two seconds and broke into the. Uh, um, uh, Israeli compound and started shooting it up. Now, I don't know how many people they killed. They, and, and the thing is, we could see that from our dormitory across the courtyard. We're maybe 200 yards away, but no oh, obstruction. Wow. I, we could, and we were up on like the 10th or 11th floor. We looked right down on that. We could see the assholes come out of the uh, rooms uh, with their ski mask on, their black ski mask, holding those uh, automatic weapons. And holy shit, I'm looking over there. I said, what the Jeez. fuck is going on? And it was on TV. 
at the same time they're televising it uh, live. And so one of the guys, one of the other weightlifters came banging on my door. He said, Ken, Ken, you got to come over here and watch this on TV. I said, fuck you. I'm watching it right now out of my, my window. window yeah. yeah, live and in color. And uh, so that was just a mess. That, so they later that day, about 9 o'clock at night, they canceled the Olympics. They said that's because this is such a horrific situation. We have to cut the Olymp- uh, the Olympics, uh, stop all competitions, um, and that that's it. That, that, if you're in a sport that still has to compete, too bad. You're canceled. Wow. Mm. And I said, son of a bitch. So anyway... Uh, I was on the track and field team, uh, like you guys know, you know, but, and, and so the, those guys, uh, the weight uh, competitors, discus throwers, hammer throwers, shot putters, those guys had uh, a room uh, just a couple floors below me. So I met up with those guys, uh, about seven or eight of them down the lobby and I says, anybody have any ideas? You know, it's uh, like noon at that time while everybody was hungry. And the cafeteria at the Olympic Village served dog food. And uh, so we said, fuck that. Let's go downtown Munich and get some real food. Maybe get a few drinks. So yeah, so we we go downtown. The subway station, brand new subway, had just opened up a couple of weeks prior to the Olympics starting, and they were right below us uh, at the Olympic Village. And so we just, you know, walked down, took the steps down, got on the uh, subway car, and went went all the way downtown uh, Munich. It wasn't too far. I can't. I don't think it was more than ten miles. So we get down there, and uh, so uh, I said, you guys want to go over to the house? They said, yeah. I said, well, I'll try across the street. So uh, that's where Hitler used to give all his uh, famous uh, speeches, you know, prior to taking over Germany, you know, back in the 30s. And uh, so we go over there as a huge place fucking huge we couldn't get in there was a fucking line a half a mile long and i i said shit so i i i said hey guys we're never going to get in here so uh well i asked a german guy standing next to me i said is there a a place around here that serves good food uh you know wiener schnitzel and ham hocks and all that like the Hofra House. Oh, yeah. They're all over. You go down here uh, on the next corner. There's a great restaurant down there. And I said, they have a big bar. Oh, yes. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> it's yeah a, lot, a lot of beer, a lot of schnapps. I said, probably have a few fat German women, too. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> So we walked down there, and God, I had a platter of Wiener schnitzel, 
and a big ham hock, a big pile of uh, potatoes and sauerkraut. And uh, the, the other guys, we all ate the same thing. And everybody was just stuffed. And uh, then we started drinking. I say, I don't know how much we're going to be able to drink. We're so full. Well, we managed to drink to about three in the morning. So uh, as a matter of fact, we had to get another meal. Uh, but, uh, I don't know how many beers. And they come in like 24, 26 ounce um, uh, steins, big, big uh, cups. And we're just slopping that shit down, getting all fucked up, man. And somebody has a bright idea of ordering schnapps. Oh, no. Oh, yeah. So we had six, seven, eight shots of schnapps. Uh, uh, Jägermeister and uh, uh, what was the name? Uh, Goldschlager and uh, Ruppelmann. Uh, and oh man, we got fucked up. And uh, about half a dozen times, I thought we were going to get in a fight with those fucking German um, uh, customers, you know, because they're all, you know, throwing jabs at us, you know. But, but when they got all liquored up, they get brave. And I said, You guys don't shut your fucking traps, we're going to come over there and punch your head off the wall and of course they they shut their mouth finally and uh so as a, as time passed two three o'clock in the morning whatever i i say hey guys we better get back to camp there you know uh before they lock us out and so everybody agrees and so we go back there, and I said, "Hey, is there? I, I saw this uh, Ru- Rudy Sablo at at our compound." I said, "Rudy, what's the? He was the team representative for the Olympic uh, team." And I said, "Rudy, I said uh, these assholes still canceled." Yep, we haven't had any notice, and they said, "Don't do anything until they get back to us," but it doesn't look good. Yeah, I, I, I said, wow, they, they've made up their mind to cancel this fucking thing. Mm. Well, something happened about five in the morning. These administrators from all the different Olympic teams, they were having this big powwow uh, at a hotel downtown Munich. And so they, they finally lightened up and says, okay, the Olympics are back on because there's no sense in canceling uh, the remaining events. And so Ruby come, uh, Rudy Sablo, he comes back in my room about 8 o'clock, 8.30, something like that. He says, Ken, the big powwow just broke up. The Olympics are back on. You have to compete. I said, oh, fuck. Rudy. What time is it? It's about 8.30. He said, we have to go across town to weigh in. We have to be there before 11 o'clock. I said, well, we have plenty of time. He said, now the traffic is bumper to bumper, Ken. So we, we hired, a, instead of getting on the team bus, 
uh, going through traffic. We had to go all the way back into the uh, into Munich and then out the other side to the Olympic Village, which was about 20 miles. And so we get a cab. The fucking cab took an hour and a half. So Jeez. we got out of the Olympic Village. Yeah, it was after nine o'clock and we had to be there by 11. So we we said, well, we're not going to take any chances. So we uh, we got there about quarter to 11 for the weigh-in, which is bullshit. And I, I when they were ready to, for me to get on the scale, I says, why in the fuck? Did you guys have us come over here at 11 o'clock in the morning after canceling the goddamn games? I says, fuck. I mean, everybody was pissed off, not just me. Well, besides me being pissed off, I was so fucking hung over. I must have drank 30 beers <laughs> and, uh, you know, had, I don't know, 10, 12 shots of, uh, uh, Ruffle Munts and Jägermeister. You know, that's just powerful. It's like 150% alcohol. But it sure tastes nice uh, going down. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and so, anyway, <laughs> after doing shots of uh, that stuff and uh, pounding those uh, big 24-ounce mugs of beer, uh uh, I was feeling no pain, and my my other uh, friends that were you know shot putters and discus throwers from the um, track and field team, you know they were all fucked up too. I mean we were all fucked up. Let's face it. So I was really in a piss uh, piss. Now after the weigh-in. Our competition doesn't start until seven o'clock that night. And our hotel or the Olympic Village is like two hours away. Now, when the fuck are we supposed to relax or take a nap? There's nothing, you know, it was just a shit. So uh, I'm hungry and pissed off and. I tell Rudy, I said, Rudy, let's go find some place to lay down. And he says, yeah. He said, well, well, let's go over to the training hall, which was about half a block away. So we went over there. I said, you know, the training room is attached to this. So I went over to see a trainer, you know, to work on my knee. The fucking thing was locked. Nobody there. <laughs> I said, Jesus Christ. Yeah. And so anyway, uh, I found a pile of uh, mats to lay on. You know, so I laid down, closed my eyes for about an hour and a half. And, you know, the, well, first we had something to eat. And so we got back there about two o'clock, I guess, and laid down for an hour and a half, maybe two hours. I got up at four. And uh, so the meet doesn't start for another three hours after that. So Rudy says, well, let's go over the training hall or over the weightlifting hall where, where we're competing. 
and just camp out there. Well, that place was fucking full of people and noisy. And so anyway, that was it. And uh, we get we get over there, and I so I just you know uh, got down on the floor and put my back up against the wall and just kind of try to doze off for another hour, but that didn't work. Yeah. So anyway, what else? If I may, just uh, real quick, you were talking about bouncing back and forth uh, wrestling and the Olympics and your powerlifting and wrestling uh, and then your knee and the training. I was wondering if you could expand a little bit on how different the training was to the the, the training for, a, say, a, a professional wrestling match versus the training for powerlifting. Obviously, your, your in-ring style was always strength and very strong. Is it a different kind of style of training? Is it just sort of the same? Uh, I was hoping you could kind of expand on that a little bit. Yeah, number one, it isn't powerlifting. It's Olympic lifting. In Olympic lifting, all the lifts are overhead. You take it from the floor to the shoulders and then put it over your head. Powerlifting is bench press, deadlift, and squat. squat. Back. Yeah, they're just partial movements. You know, it's not athletic at all. It's just uh, you know, brute strength and uh, shit, the way they do it now, it's all kinds of knee, knee wraps, elbow wraps, chest wraps, uh, body wraps, shit, they're wrap, wrapped up like fucking mummies. mummies right? And then they have these powerlifting uh, suits that takes three, four guys to help you get them on because they're so tight. And uh, so when you see guys in powerlifting meets that the, the powerlifting suits and uh, bench uh, shirts that they use uh, are ridiculous. That's not lifting weights. The, uh, a friend of mine, uh, Jamie Harris, he does a, uh, uh, he, uh, uh, does a Elvis Presley impersonations, and he's really good at it. And uh, he, uh, when he compete, he doesn't compete anymore. He's about fifty-four. But Jamie, uh, first time he ever used a bench shirt, he held he held the world record in the bench press at seven hundred and sixty-five pounds or something like that back when it still had some resemblance of uh, being a real event. But anyway, uh, he put that bench shirt on for the first time and it increased his bench press 80 pounds. 80 Man. pounds, yeah. And he said, Jesus Christ, this is unbelievable. No wonder everybody wears these things. And uh, and then they, they put these suits on uh, for uh, squatting, and that, that can increase uh, uh, your squat like 300 pounds, 400 pounds, and, um, you know, shit like that. And the, the bench shirts, the ones they have now, can help these guys, you know, like the super heavyweights, they, they, they can help a guy uh, as much as 400 pounds. Can you imagine that? 
so you're yeah. let's say you're doing uh seven seven hundred pounds legitimately without the shirt well you put that fucking shirt on now you're doing eleven hundred that's crazy yeah. yeah i'm stupid yeah you know i'm hearing this uh, right from jamie i mean he's a legitimate uh 700 pound venture you know so he he's not feeding me any bullshit a nice guy too he lives in bell vernon pennsylvania and my third wife my last wife nancy she grew up in bell vernon uh pennsylvania i said i said jesus christ jamie you're really from uh uh, uh, uh you know uh what did what, I say? Bell Vernon? Yeah, Bell Vernon. Yeah. I said, you're telling me you're from Bell Vernon. I said, sure am. I said, my last wife, Nancy, grew up in Bell Vernon, right down on the fucking river. Oh, she's a river rat. I said, that's exactly what she was, a fucking river rat from Bell Vernon. And... Uh, was that the Monongahela River? Yeah. Yes. You had three rivers that came together up at the point in Pittsburgh. You had the uh, Monongahela, and you had the, uh, what was the other one? I remember they. that's why they called it Three Rivers Stadium in yeah. Pittsburgh back in the day. And they yeah, used the word, well, the word confluence of three rivers. And the only one I remember is the Monongahela because it was catchy. Yeah. And the Ohio. Uh, one of the rivers was the Ohio River. And uh, God damn. Fuck. I'm almost 80 years old. I can't remember anything anymore. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no. But, yeah. Oh, no. <laughs> so anyway. uh Anyway, there's three rivers there that came to a point there in Pittsburgh. And Bell, Bell Vernon is about, oh, I don't know, 25 miles south of there. So uh, her family grew up on the riverbank of the Monongahela. And before there's dam control there upriver, they got flooded out about every other year. And I, I mean, the fucking water would come in six, seven, eight feet high in their house. They had to take all the furniture off the main floor and, and uh, uh, carry it upstairs to the top floor. And one year, the fucking river came up high enough to almost go uh, into the rooms upstairs of their house. And uh, well, it's so anyway, they build a fucking dam, God bless them. And uh, after that, they'd still get a little flooding in, in the front yard, but not much. But can you imagine that every other, like every third, fourth year, the fuck of your house would get flooded six feet in the inside? I mean, Christ, you know, give me a break. All your furniture and sheetrock and everything fucking destroyed but anyway uh, uh, this Jamie Harris the uh, uh, bench press guy um, 
the Elvis Presley impersonator, he grew up in Bell Vernon too, but not down by the river. His family lived up, uh, um, well, I don't know, a couple miles uh, up uh, inside the uh, township. And so they never got flooded. And, uh, but he said he felt sorry. He had friends that lived down there on the river. Yeah, it used to get flooded out all the time. And he said, that was a shit. I said, yeah, I know. <laughs> so uh, that's uh, Interstate 70 runs right through uh, Bell Vernon. Okay. Yeah, and we used to, whenever we wrestled in Ohio or, Pen- or uh, Pennsylvania, we are on that Interstate uh, um, 70. And that I think that was eventually uh, turned into the turnpike. The PA turnpike. Yeah. And uh, so, yeah, I spent a lot of time in uh, that area. And uh, uh, Steubenville, Ohio, is right across the river from uh, uh, Pennsylvania. And... Uh, between Steubenville and uh, Wheeling, West Virginia, we'd wrestle in those areas too. Oh yeah, yeah. So I I know my way around that area uh, pretty good. But uh, I love downtown Pittsburgh, and there was a lot of lot of good restaurants, uh, Italian restaurants, uh, and uh, well, German and. Uh, uh, Italian uh, restaurants and uh, old old world type restaurants, you know, ethnic, a lot lot of ethnic people, you know, the Polacks would live here, the Russians over here, the Germans over here, you know, the Italians, the Greeks, and Christ, they all had their own neighborhoods, and the restaurants were fantastic, and uh, yeah, I loved uh, Pittsburgh. But, uh, yeah, so anyway. So, Ken, I'm going to do a, a, a synopsis of your career here. So we got to tr- – hopefully I get this all right. So you, you broke yeah. in late 72 in AWA, close to a year and a half there. You wrestled for Fritz von Erich for a bit. Uh, right after you started with Fritz, actually, you wrestled Jack Briscoe, who was the uh, then NWA champion in a two out of three falls uh, title match, which is a big yeah. deal. Then you went to Georgia, you went to Mid-Atlantic, you worked a huge program with uh, Johnny Valentine, who was their top heel, and then eventually you moved to WWF, so, um, and you came, I guess you started really full-time at beginning of 77, so maybe about five months later is when Billy Graham uh, beat Bruno for the title, and this is something I always wanted to ask you, because the first time I saw you, I thought, holy shit, this is the guy that could beat Bruno for the title. Was there ever any talk about you being the man instead of superstar Billy Graham or maybe even taking the title away from, from Billy Graham? Yeah. Uh, when I first started up there for uh, Vince, uh, the old man, you know, uh, he was uh, interested in me. Uh, I, I was there less than a month and he came over to me and said, Ken, uh, how do you like this business? He says, I know you've only been in a couple of three years or so. And I said, yeah. 
he said, well, we run a pretty tight ship here. Bruno's been our champion for quite a while now, off and on for, God, I think. Uh, 10 years. Close. Yeah, 10 years anyway. And so anyway, he says, how would you, uh, would you be interested in being uh, our champion someday? And I said, what, beat Bruno for the belt? He says, yeah. I said, well, when would that be? He said, well, within a year or two. I said, yeah, I'm interested. I said, I can't give you any answers right now, but we can sit down uh, when the time comes and discuss it. So Bruno got a hold of me and says, Ken, how would you like to have the championship belt? I said, you know, I talked to Vince McMahon about a month ago about that. He said, oh, yeah, I know. I'm aware. He said, I'd really like to drop it to you. But he said, this is, there's a problem there. Vince works with uh, Eddie Graham down in Florida. Uh. And yeah. And so that's what happened. Uh, Vince and uh, the end, that was part of the NWA board of uh, trustees back there. And Vince, I uh, didn't have a vote, but he was on the board because he was good friends with Sam Mushnick. And I think Sam Sam Mushnick from uh, St. Louis, he's the one that started that NWA board, you know, back in the 50s. I think actually and, Graham, Graham was the president at one time, too, Eddie Graham. Oh, yeah, Eddie, yeah, yeah. So anyway, uh, at that time, Billy... Uh, before he came back to WWF, he was down there in Florida. And uh, anyway, when they were having that NWA powwow, uh, Eddie got together with uh, McMahon. And uh, at that time, Vince agreed with Buddy or uh, with uh, Graham that. Uh, Superstar Billy Graham could be the WWF champion, and the you know when when Billy left uh, the WWF a couple of years prior to that, uh, him and Ivan Koloff, and the, they both had heat with the old man, and the old man said, "Fuck this goddamn superstar mentality." He said, I don't want to see any, any more goddamn superstars. So he was grooming Bob Backlund at the same time. Uh, I think he was working for uh, the Funk Brothers out there in Amarillo, Texas. And uh, so when they brought him, or then, then he, he went to Florida and Eddie Graham was, you know, and, you know those guys talked all the time. And but my name was still at uh, on the top of the list. Anyway, I don't know what the fuck happened. Anyway, they bring in Superstar uh, to the WWF to, and work uh, about two, three uh, city uh, program with Bruno, and then Bruno dropped the belt to him. And uh, but Bruno came to me and says, "Can." 
I know that I, I told you that I'd probably t- uh, you know drop the belt to you, but you know politics as as, as it is. He says you're next in line. Well, I knew I wasn't next in line. I knew that they were fucking programming this kid from uh, uh, Minnesota, Princeton, Minnesota, Bobby Backlund. And they said, well, so I I was uh, the biggest name that never held a championship belt, except for I held a lot. I think I had 34 belts altogether in my career. I had the Intercontinental belt, the uh, the belt from St. Louis. You you won the, both of those belts. I didn't mean to interrupt you, but that that's something to to note that you won the NWA Missouri Heavyweight Title, which was one yeah. of the most prestigious regional territory titles, and the you know WWWF Intercontinental Title four days apart. You beat Pat yeah. Patterson for the one, and you beat I think Kevin Von Erich for the other one. Yeah, yeah, that's amazing. I was the only one to do that. I was the only one to hold those two belts simultaneously. I was the only one. And I mean, I uh, I wrestled all the world champions at the time. I uh, starting with uh, uh, Bruno, superstar Billy Graham, uh, 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 Terry Funk, uh, Harley Race, uh, Ric Flair. Uh, Jack Briscoe, I, I wrestled them all. And uh, uh, we did good bits. I'll tell you a funny story. This is a funny fucking story. Jack Briscoe, he comes down to Texas. He was going to be in for like two weeks. So after like the third or fourth day, uh, we're booked to wrestle each other down there in Corpus Christi, Texas. And uh, at that time, Corpus Christi was a, you know, little uh, fishing village, beautiful weather, beautiful beaches. I mean, perfect place for a vacation. (laughs) But for a wrestling match, not so much. They had a a nice building there that probably held three, four thousand people. A couple blocks from the beach. And so the day of the match comes. It's a Saturday night. And uh, I went over early. Matches started at 8. I got there about 6.30. Nobody there. No fans milling around like they normally would be. And uh, two or three uh, wrestlers up in the locker room. And then finally, about half an hour later, Jack Briscoe comes up to the locker room. He says, uh, Ken, how are you doing? We've never met. I said, yeah, that's right. I said, I'm doing fine. How are you? He says, good. I, he says, is anybody going to show up to this fucking place tonight? <laughs> I says, well, the rumor is that there was no TV. Um or Telly Blanchard's dad. Oh, Joe, yeah. Was, yeah, Joe Blanchard. He was running the show down in Corpus Christi and San Antonio and a couple other smaller towns. 
And uh, anyway, uh, he was all fucked up. He was in love with some 20-year-old girl. And I think he had just got divorced or something. And so he he's running around South Texas, you know, with this young girl. I don't know how old he was. He had to be close to 50 at the time. And so he was madly in love. And well, he had been off the bottle for several years while he's back on the bottle. And he was, he come in after Jack and I show up and he hadn't shaved for three or four days. His hair was all messed up and he had a pair of Levi's and a t-shirt on. He just looked like a drunk off the street. And he smelled like one too. And uh, so he comes over and he's, he called you know, all the wrestlers over there, about 14 wrestlers and a couple referees. He says, guys, I lost a TV about uh, six weeks ago. So we haven't had no TV. Nobody even knows that we're here except for some you know, small uh, announcements on TV that we had made. But we lost our TV programming. But we get it back next week. And Jack uh, Briscoe, he says, next week? He said, what the fuck does that, what good does that do us? He says, it doesn't do us any good. But we're going to be back on TV, supposedly for the rest of the year. Well, this is summertime. So Jack and I go out there, two out of three fall. Um, it was... Uh, and uh, Joe says, oh, you guys can do whatever you want, you know, 20 minutes, 30 minutes, whatever, whatever you want. So we did that. I, we went about a half an hour. We had a pretty good match. Uh, now, at that time, I, I was only in the business for a couple of years, you know. So I, I wasn't the greatest worker or anything at that time. And uh, so... We worked out a match, you know, up there in the locker room. And uh, we went out and we worked our asses off. You know how many people were in the, actually people paid in the audience? 87. It was less than 100. Wow. You weren't far off, man. (laughs) It might have been 87, but I think it was closer to 70. Oh, and, we, we didn't uh, count the house. It's never a good thing, right? No. <laughs> so anyway, we get back up to the locker room after the match. Uh, I put Jack over in the third round uh, with a, a count out, I think. So anyway, he gets his hand raised. We get back up to the locker room. Joe's up there, you know, with the money to give us. Down, down there in Texas, they paid paid us that evening after every show so they always paid with an envelope so he puts his money in the envelope and everything and hands everybody their uh, envelope with their money in it so i opened mine up uh 25 dollars oh my god oh wow well you have to understand there was uh, less than 100 people in the house yeah yeah Ticket prices back in those days, I think ringside was five or six dollars. 
you know, so the, I, I don't think the gate was more than $500 at yeah. the most. Maybe 600 But anyway, uh, Jack opens his up. And he's looking at it. He's looking at it. He says, Ken, how much did you get paid? I said, $25. How much did you get paid, Jack? 40 Oh, and that's world, the world champion, right? Yeah, world champion makes forty dollars. Wow! And I says, "Holy fuck!" Yeah, there there are no guarantees back in those days. Right. Nothing. And so uh, I said, "I can't even get drunk tonight on this money." <laughs> <laughs> he says, "Well, we'll go out and have a few beers anyway." And uh, he says, "This is what I'll do." I'll buy. You know, bet beer was only a buck a piece back in those days. Uh, uh, hard drink, you know, whiskey and uh, Coke was probably buck and a quarter, buck thirty-five maybe. So we got plenty uh, fucked up. <laughs> so uh, the blackjacks were on that deal. You know, Jack Lands and. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, Mulligan. Uh, Mulligan. Mulligan was really a nice guy. Lanzo was kind of a prick. But uh, Mulligan's really a nice guy, down to earth. And uh, so we're, we're at this fucking bar, the strip joint, and uh, whiskey a go go type clubs, you know, back in those days, uh, they had, uh, the bar we were in was about three stories tall. Uh, you know, no, no floor, just the ceiling was like 30, 40 feet high. So they had, uh, as a strip joint, so they had all these girls, these go-go girls in there, you know, they had platforms sticking out of the wall, like a staircase going up to the ceiling and there had to be 20, 25 girls dancing and, you know, with no clothes on, you know, I said, my God, there's no, those girls don't have any clothes on. <laughs> and uh, hits, hits were flopping all over the place. And I said, Holy shit. But we had a good time and boy, did we get fucked up. And of course, there was always your usual tough guys in there, you know, and they started fucking around. Uh, Mulligan uh, put an end to that real quick. He went over to their table, turned their table over, uh, knocked them out of their chairs, says, if you assholes keep it up, I'm going to fucking knock Ollie out. And he said, I would suggest you guys moving on to another bar <laughs> they fucking ran out of there like rats good advice yeah yeah and so anyway uh that was our night uh russell the world champion jack briscoe 25 dollar payoff yeah and uh then yeah when i worked with harley and well, I worked with Terry Funk and Ric Flair and all those guys. Of course, we were bigger, 
bigger venues, you know, sold out. And uh, and Bruno, uh, of course. Yeah, Bruno. Oh, yeah. I used to make three and a half to four thousand dollars with Bruno. What matches yeah. those, those were? Holy cow! Do what? Those I actually watched one uh, on Sunday. It was the, uh, the I think I told you about it. The Texas Death Match. I think it was just yeah. about three or four months after Bruno lost the title, and uh, so. Yeah, but anything went. I, I, as much as I love Bruno, I tell you, I think you got screwed because number one, you try to bring a chair in the ring and the referee took it away. I'm thinking, like, there's no rules. Like, what, why couldn't he bring the chair in the ring? And then I, I actually think Bruno's shoulders were on the mat, but yours got counted out. But, um, yeah. I, I was, I have to, this is something that's been on my mind for like probably 45 years. So, like, you're going to help me clear my conscience here, Mr. Patera. Yeah. So, I, yeah, I, you're, you'll be forever known for the, you know, for putting the ending, the career of uh, Billy white wolf, which I say is good riddance. Like, you know, BWW, the only good BWW is Buffalo wild wings in my opinion. But um, so I I have to ask you, like, am I a bad person? Because I actually enjoyed that. You're a wonderful, good person. Thank you. For liking that. I I feel redeemed 45 years of, of guilt. Yeah, <laughs> I love it. Uh, <laughs> was there a backstage? That, obviously, he was going somewhere else, right? It was he, he, he going to the AWA, I think, or no? Well, he didn't go anywhere else. Oh, he didn't. Okay. He, no, he well, he went. He had a. I think he still has it. He had a a condo at the condo complex there on uh, El Moana uh, Canal which is a real prestigious uh, condo complex in Hawaii, in Honolulu, right off the, you know, not, not far from the beach, maybe uh, three blocks off the beach. It was a gorgeous fucking place. And uh, it was right on the canal uh, there uh, in Honolulu. Uh, it was on the east side of Honolulu, I believe it was. And, uh, you know, going towards uh, Diamond Head, uh, the old extinct volcano. And uh, so he uh, made a deal with uh, Vince. Uh, He had this growth on his uh, back, uh, you know, uh, up towards his neck. And, uh, you know, it was driving him nuts. And so uh, he talked Vince into paying for the operation. So he had the operation, and uh, I don't remember where he was li- living at that time, you know, other than Hawaii, but I think he was still living in Hawaii. So he flew back to Hawaii and had a doctor that he knew uh, cut that uh, uh, growth. Uh, off his uh, back and neck, and uh, it was protruding a couple inches. I mean, wow. it was very, no- very noticeable. Uh, but it was benign. You know, it wasn't cancerous or anything. But he still wanted to get rid of it. And so we did the swinging full Nelson there, where I went release it. You know, and then all the wrestlers from the locker room come piling out into the into the ring to you know, pull me off and, you know, to try to get me to break the full Nelson. 
And uh, so I eventually broke the full Nelson, but I held on to it for a couple minutes. And uh, so he, it was believable. Very. Yeah. So when he went back to Hawaii and had the operation on uh, that growth, uh, he stayed there for, you know, like three months. Well, eventually, and his tag team partner at the time was uh, Chief uh, uh, Joe uh, Scarpa. What, 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 what was his wrestling name? Joe Scarpa was Chief Jack Strongbow. Yes, yeah, Strongbow. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Chief Strongbow. His real name was Joe Scarpa, Italian. From Nutley, New Jersey. There's one thing. Yeah, right. right. Not Pahuska, Oklahoma. If there's uh, one thing you can always bank on in wrestling, it's Italians make the best Indians. Yeah, because they have the big nose. <laughs> as, as an Italian <laughs> myself, I, I can I can sympathize with that. Yeah. He looked just like a fucking Indian. Well, outside of uh, outside of Wahoo, of course. Yeah, well, Wahoo was a legitimate Indian. He was uh, Waukesha, and uh, he was a couple different uh, breeds in there. Wahoo was one of the toughest guys I ever knew, and he was one of the nicest guys I ever knew. He'd uh, give give you the shirt off your back, off his back. If you were down and out and, and needed something, you know, I'm not kidding. He was really a nice guy. I've heard that before, yeah. Yeah. I'll, t- I'll tell you a funny story about Wahoo. I met Wahoo in 1960 in Hillsboro, Oregon. And that was uh, the first year of the Dallas Cowboys. And uh, my brother was in that expansion draft. And, uh, uh, each team got seven or eight players, you know, uh, veterans from different teams. And so my brother winds up there. And, uh, you know, so me and some friends of mine, you know, we jump in the car and go out there. I was only 16 years old at the time. And so we, we went to almost every practice. And the reason the Dallas Cowboys chose Hillsborough, Oregon to do their summer camp was because it was supposed to be cool. You know, their, you know, their home base is Dallas, Texas, where it was 105 every day. And Hillsborough, Oregon normally would be, you know, in the 60s and 70s. Well, that year, when the Cowboys showed up to training camp, it was at a small college out there. Uh, Hillsborough Junior College, I believe it was. The fucking field was as hard as a brick. Oh, geez. Because the temperature was averaging between 103 and 108 every fucking day. Yikes. So they, yeah, they, and, and no rain. And so they had to run the sprinklers. They left the sprinklers on 24 hours a day, you know, and uh, so when they showed up to practice, you know, the field had been so dried out and everything. And it was a small college, you know, it wasn't the best field in the world to begin with. And uh, uh, 
So they got out there, and everybody was beat up from the fucking hard field. Any, anyway, I, I uh, met Wahoo there. My brother introduced us, and uh, I was—I think I was a junior. Yeah, I was a junior in uh, high school at the time, and so uh, I get talking with Wahoo, and he says, "Well." If, uh, I told him I knew some professional wrestlers from Sam LaPrinzi's gym and uh, I might be interested in getting into pro wrestling later on, you know, after I graduate from college and all that stuff. And uh, At that time, I was thinking about going to the Olympics uh, in the shot put. And uh, well, that didn't work out real good, so I uh, switched to weightlifting because you have to lift weights in order to throw the shot put. So anyway, uh, I'm talking to Wahoo, and he says, "Well, kid," he says, uh, "If if you want, if you ever get into pro wrestling, uh, I hope we get together." Well, we wound up in. Uh, I was working for Vern Gagne, 1973. And uh, Wahoo was there. And so I went over. I said, Wahoo, you remember me? He said, what's your name? I said, Ken Patera. Oh, God, yeah. You're Jack Patera's little brother. We, we met during summer camp up there in Oregon. I said, yeah, and the field was as hard as a brick. He said, yes, it was. <laughs> but anyway, he made it to the third round of the cut, and then he got cut in the third round of summer camp. So he went on the market and the New York Jets picked him up. Well, he became huge in New York. I remember. Uh, Yeah, for the Jets. Uh, The whole fucking stadium, 60,000 strong. Every time Wahoo made a tackle, the whole stadium would suck. Wahoo, Wahoo, Wahoo. (laughs) He was almost as big as Joe, Joe Namath. You know, uh, the year after uh, that, that's when, uh, or was it two years later, that Joe was out of uh, uh, Alabama. He got kicked out of Alabama for doing something silly. I don't remember what. (laughs) So uh, what would have been his senior year, he winds up with uh, the New York Jets. At that time, he signed the biggest contract in the history of pro football. 400,000. Yes, I remember that. <laughs> he he came with all the hype. Yeah, Broadway Joe. So I never met Joe, but uh, we had the same doctor. He had uh, four operations on his uh, knees. I think four operations on both of them. You know, so eight operations altogether. So uh, Dr. Ferguson down in Oklahoma City, I flew down there uh, 10 months before the Olympics. Uh, And that was the first operation I had on my left knee. And uh, so uh, from weightlifting, you know, and I was just, you know, getting ready to go to the, trying to go to the Olympics with a bum knee. But anyway, uh, Dr. Ferguson says he does like 
60 football players' uh, knees every year. And he was a go-to surgeon for uh, knee surgery. So uh, I can't remember who gave me his phone number, but I called him, talked to his secretary. Well, Dr. Ferguson's all booked up until till May. I said, May? I said, I'm going to be in the Olympics a couple months after that. He said, I, I said, I need it, need it knee surgery he said so she says i'll have dr ferguson call you she says where do you live i said minneapolis right now so a day later dr ferguson calls me and uh, so uh, he says uh, my nurse says that you need a knee surgery because you're going to the olympic games in september i said yeah and that's when he told me, you know, the history of operating on uh, football players. And uh, he was just, he, so that's the day before I get down there. So I was talking to him in uh, first, first of December. So I went down there at the end of September or the end of uh, December. And he says, yeah, Joe Namus uh, just checked out of the hospital. He said, that's the fourth operation I've uh, done on his uh, left knee. I said, yeah, well, that's my left knee. And I said, that sounds like you have a lot of experience with left knees. He said, yes, I do. <laughs> but he was uh, uh, rated the number one knee surgeon in the, in, in the world wow. at that time. So he says, uh, he asked me, uh, I, I asked him how much it was going to be. He says, well, I've never given a donation to the Olympics before, so I'm not going to charge you anything. Oh, wow. Yeah. But he says it's $750 uh, for the operation and the, and the hospital bed, everything. He says, I'll pick up that tab. Nice. Yeah, I says God, seven hundred and fifty dollars. Fuck that. That was like a million dollars to me back then. Yeah. Yeah. And so anyway, uh, uh, back in nineteen seventy-two. So uh, he does the operation and everything, and uh, I fly back to Minneapolis, and I'm on crutches, and it's snowing out. So. Uh, uh, Vern wants me to go to some nightclub with him, him and a couple, couple of his buddies. And uh, he he ran around with a lot of rich people, a lot of them. You know, m most of his friends were very, very wealthy. So we're downtown Minneapolis on uh, 7th Street. And uh, that was a real, you know, rocking place at the time. So I don't know how it was that his, one of his nieces were there. She was a beautiful girl. What a hell of a body and everything. So she asked me to dance. I pointed to my leg. I said, I'm on crutches. Oh, my God, what happened? So I told her, you know, I injured it, uh, lifting weights and, it had been bothering me for about two, well, over two years. So I, I flew down to Oklahoma City, had it 
operated on and now I'm back. And she says, well, where do you live? I says, I live over at Canterbury uh, Condos, uh, just out on Excelsior Boulevard. She says, oh, I said, would you like to come over after uh, we're through drinking a bar hop? And and, uh, she says, yeah. So I get over there. I have this big water bed in my living room. I fucked her for four or five hours. <laughs> I, I, I swear well, to God. That's, uh, that's not, that's yeah, not where I, I thought that story was going. Yeah. Oh, no, I did. Yeah, beautiful tits and <laughs> oh, nice body. Yeah, good looking girl. So what is yeah. the show rating out there? It went from yeah, R to yeah, X? Yeah, like... <laughs> yeah I, I have a cast on my fucking leg on my left leg from my balls down to my ankles. Yeah, but I got the job done. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> Ain't no stopping yeah. it. Wow. That's a great yeah, story. So about a week after that, I, I sat down at the wrestling office talking to Vern. He said, how, how was last night with my, uh, he mentioned her name. I can't remember her name. I said, it was fantastic, Vern. I said, uh, I uh, uh, fucked her on my uh, waterbed in the living room. Good job. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, man. What other sport can you get these stories? Oh, my God. (laughs) Yeah. Well, I was actually just a a weightlifter at that time. But I I was... you know that whole 1972, and the, the my knee healed up about 80 percent until about a month before the Olympics, and that would have been in August because the Olympics were in September, and my competition was September 5th, 1972, and uh, so it didn't heal up completely. And uh, so anyway, you know, that shit happens, you know, and uh, I wish it hadn't, (laughs) you know, because I know I could have won a gold medal. Absolutely. No doubt. If you were 100%, yeah, absolutely. If I was 100%, I would have won by 50 pounds. Wow. Yeah, 40, 50 pounds, easy. Yeah. But that big fat fucking Russian, he didn't have any injuries. You know, if he would have had something wrong with him, I, but it wasn't to be, you know. So, anyway, that was my 1972 Olympic Games. You know, bombed out. Yeah. 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 So, yeah, I, I, you know, I, I won uh, the national championships in 69, 70, 71, and 72. Uh, in 72, I not only won the nationals for the fourth time, I won the Pan American Games with six new uh, Pan American Game records. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, I blew, I blew those records completely out of the water. I mean, it wasn't and, just a history. It wasn't just a history of winning; it was a history of breaking records as you were doing it, dominating. Yeah, yeah, right, right, yeah. 
every meet I entered, I, I set some kind of national or international record. And uh, so, yeah. I had a pretty good career, even with having a bum knee the last two years uh, in weightlifting. So can't, can't argue with that. No, no. Well, I mean, we looked at at tonight. We've talked wrestling, weightlifting, and and I mean, so, uh, the your other accomplishments and in, in sports. <laughs> well, that's what I was about to say. Uh, I mean, legendary wrestler, legendary athlete, apparently uh, a self-professed legendary sex machine. So let's um, uh, <laughs> wrap up tonight uh, with final final thoughts. How do you want history to remember Ken Patera? Oh, well, that I gave it my all. No matter what I did, whether it was in uh, athletics or in business uh uh or just you know just being a good guy i i never i might have offended a few people over silly stuff but I, I never went out of my way to uh talk down to anybody or uh abuse them or anything like that like i know a lot of people in the wrestling business uh had done and i just didn't want to uh, be that way because shit like that follows you home too. Absolutely. If you're, mm-hmm. if you're abusive out, uh, in the public, you, you take it home. And I was never abusive. Uh, I was married three times. Uh, so I struck out three times and, uh, that was the end of my, uh, marriage career. I never got married after that last, uh, divorce. But I have two beautiful daughters, Emily and Natalie. They're, uh, oh, God, how old are those kids now? 41 and 30, 41 and 37, I think. You know, something like that. (laughs) But uh, right now I I live with my oldest daughter and her family. Uh, uh, I build a house. Uh, I, I sold my other house that I lived in for 30 years down in Minneapolis. And we uh, uh, were up here in Hinkley, Minnesota. That's 100 miles north of uh, Minneapolis, St. Paul. And uh, I live on one end of the house and they live on the other end. It's, it's about 130, 140 feet long. And uh, so... Uh, in order to uh, visit with them, they either walk down the hallway to my apartment or I walk down the hallway to their uh, house. Yeah, their place about three times the size of mine. Well, I don't need a big place. Right. I have a thousand. I have a thousand square feet, which is bigger than I actually need. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I'm real comfortable here live out in the country. Uh, I don't have any neighbors to yell at. Uh, right. <laughs> it's a beautiful place. I've been there. Hankley? Yes. Oh, okay. Yes. I went yeah. to the uh, casino there a couple of times, actually. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it's a huge casino. Very, very nice. Yeah, I haven't been there since I moved up here. I only live a mile away from there. 
Yeah. Maybe uh, my son lives in, in in North Minneapolis, so maybe the next time I visit, uh, you know, you and I can go to the casino and we can take care of some yeah. tough guys. The, yeah. There or, you or, or you can take care of some tough guys, and I'll I'll cheer you I on. Don't, I don't take care of anybody anymore. <laughs> no, I'm too too relaxed. Uh, I just turned seventy nine. I thought it was my 80th birthday, and uh, but I'm only 79. Yeah, you're so, a year behind our sponsor, Jimmy. Jimmy is August 6th, they think, 1942. You're, what, November the 6th, 1943. My memory yeah, serves right. me correct. Right. Yeah, we talked about that, yeah. Yeah, so I had a, a, a good career in pro wrestling. Uh, and, uh, as, as I was, uh, wrapping it up, that was, what was my third or fourth time that I, uh, was in the WWF back in 88. And I just got, uh, you know, I was out on the West coast and I, that the, they didn't want to give, uh, give me any more pushes. Because I, I I had injured my elbow, I tore the tendon, uh, tricep tendon off my right elbow, and had that surgically uh, repaired. And you know my back was fucked up, and my attitude was fucked up worse than my body. And uh, I just wanted out. So I, and uh, you know I told Vince, I said Vince, you're treating me like a liability. And you know I'm still a good asset for this fucking company, but if you're going to continue to uh, underpay me and fucking put me in all these shit towns, I said uh, I'm done. Well, God, you know, let's let's talk about it. I said no, there's nothing to talk about. He said, well, could you put over uh, Bad News Brown and Big Boss Man and uh king kong bundy and i said well how many guys you want me to put over <laughs> i said i don't give a fuck i i got uh uh till uh summer slam that was the first summer slam i said i'll put over everybody i get in the ring with how's that would you really i said yeah i said i have no problem with that i don't give a fuck Everybody is getting to the uh, knowledge that it's all at work anyway. You know, it's not real. I said it's not like going to the Olympic Games, you know, and competing on the up and up, you know. So I, I said, I don't give a fuck. I'll put over. So I put over everybody for like the last five months I was uh, working for the WWF. And, uh, that was it. And you, you were in incredible shape, though. Yeah, I was still in good shape. Very, very good yeah. shape. Yeah. So I always, uh, you know, paid attention to how I looked. And or a lot of guys didn't. And uh, so that's how it was, you know. And I, you know, Vince just turned out to be a fucking prick. And, uh so anyway, but for the the last uh, four or five months I worked for him, I said, I'm not going to work for what you're paying me now. 
I said, I can't make a living doing this. He said, well, how much do you need? I said, well, I'm not even sure. I said, I'd like to have 4000 a week anyway, 5000 And so that's what I got paid uh, the last several months. I was you know, probably making close to 5000 a week. Right. So that was but that that's, was good money for back then, you know. Oh yeah, I, that, I was just about to say that. That's still, I mean, and and considering, you, you, like you said, on your way out and how things were going, that's that's still an incredible payday and a testament to how much they thought you were worth, even even at the time. Yeah, well, I was worth a hell of a lot more than five thousand a week. I'll tell you that. Some of those fucking guys were making, you know, six, seven, eight thousand a week. And uh, that that's another thing that pissed me off, you know, fucking some of those guys couldn't carry my jock strap. And uh, but like I say, it's all politics, you know. So that that it is, Benny, as yeah. we wrap up here with uh, with Ken, any any final thoughts, final questions? Uh, just uh, I mean, these stories. This is what I live for, you know, and I first saw Ken when I was, I think, maybe 21 uh, in the, you know, the 70s in New York. And just, you know, the guy, you know, was just so believable. And, you know, back then to me, it was still very real. And the minute I saw him, I thought, holy shit, Bruno's in trouble. And, you know, I didn't really say that very often. But when I saw him, it's like, oh, damn. And I, I wouldn't have been the least bit surprised if he, you know, if he won the title from Bruno. I mean that's how that's how credible and that's how that's how legitimate and how intense he was. Well, Bruno wanted to put me over for the belt, but then politics reared its ugly head, you know, with Vince and uh, Graham down there in Florida, you know, Eddie. And uh, so Eddie says, I think you had to put the belt on Superstar. And uh, Vince says, No, I think I'm going to put it on Ken Patera. And anyway, over six or seven months, uh, they came up with uh, Billy Graham. It was now was Lou Albano your manager? Or was it yeah? Was it Lou? Right? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I mean, I I can't imagine like you guys wouldn't have got enough heat to sell out the Garden every month. That, that would have been oh, yeah. easy. Oh shit! We would would have sold out every place. Well, I I I had been selling out everywhere. You know when. Uh, Zabisco and Bruno worked that angle. They they put sometimes they put Backlund and I on the same card, but very rarely. Let's say uh, Zabisco and uh, uh, Bruno would would have been in Boston. Uh, just for example, uh, uh, Backlund and I would uh, be working down in uh, Baltimore. And uh, the three times I worked with Bruno in Baltimore, we didn't sell it out. We had close to a sellout, you know, within two or 3,000 seats. But when I worked with uh, Backlund, and to give you an idea, I was still the hottest heel in the fucking territory. So when we worked uh, for uh, Backlund's belt at that time, I, I asked Phil Zackle, the promoter down there, I says, shit, the place is sold out. 
said, no, no, it isn't, Ken. He says, we missed it by three tickets. Wow. At three tickets, I said, that's a sellout. He said, yeah, he started laughing, you know. He says, yeah, it was uh, definitely sold out. And I, I never came that close Wait. to selling out with Bruno. I think the, out of the three times I worked with Bruno down there in Baltimore, we came within 2000 was the closest we came to selling it out. Yeah. Safe to say you made more than $25 for that show, huh? Made 35. <laughs> <laughs> and, a, and a Subway sandwich. Right. And, and a Subway, right. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, we had, uh, I had good runs with uh, back. You know, I had Backlund's first match uh, in the WWF. Uh, he was still, he, he came in and Vince's idea, I'm going to have Backlund on TV for one full year. I'm going to put him over, 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 and then uh, we'll turn him loose. Well, I think it was August of that year and Vince came to me and says Ken we want to do a little experiment here we want you to work with Bobby Backlund I said really he says yeah he said uh, we we want to see how the crowd reacts Wildwood New Jersey you guys know where that is oh yeah Absolutely. yes sir yeah, it's uh, right, right on the coast, uh, not too far from Philadelphia. And so we, we, there's no building down there. So the, the and so the old man says they community center. And he said there's no bleachers or anything, but they have, uh, you know, like two and a half thousand or two thousand chairs that they're going to set up. And, uh, you know, the, the locker rooms weren't even finished yet. You know, so there were no showers, uh, no running water. And uh, so anyway, we get down there. They turned away about 3,000 people. And, uh, you know, it was right on the beach. And uh, or off the beach about a half a block, I guess it was. And... Uh, so it was, I, I couldn't believe all the fucking uh, uh, tourists down there and how many fans there were. It was uh, ridiculous. Yeah, we, we could have, if that building held seven, 8,000, we would have sold it out. Yeah. You know, it's really funny, though, and I don't know, because I did some research on this. At the same time, he was, Bob Backlund was on New York TV, he was still wrestling in Florida. But he wasn't exactly setting the world on fire. I mean, he was losing a lot of matches. He wasn't really yeah. over down there at all. No, no. Which I thought was well, kind of strange. If they, you know, they're, they're preparing to give this guy a huge push. Why didn't they put him over down there as well? Yeah, yeah. Well, that's Eddie Graham for you. Yeah. Yeah. So anyway, uh, uh, they put Backlund over like uh, King Kong, Superman, all rolled into one. And so when he came out, you know, he was he was already over, you know, especially working with the hottest heel in the territory. 
Right. That had a uh, everywhere I worked with Backland, it was sold out. Everywhere. Didn't matter if it was a small town in between town or, or a big arena. Everything was sold out. Yeah. Yeah. And then uh, Bruno and Zabisco, they'd be working the same night that Backland and I worked, but they'd be in a different town is all. And we drew just as much as they did, if wow. not more. Yeah. Yeah. Every night. Yeah. So anyway. Yeah. Well, I, I can't thank you enough for your time. It's I, I could listen to these stories forever and I know you've got so much more to tell. Before oh, yeah. we let you go, uh, Benny and I were talking before we got you on. You have uh, a book coming out. Uh, I was, yeah, yeah you, I'll, give, I you, I'll a, give you a chance to promote that. Well, it's going to be out in about three to four weeks. We're shooting for uh, uh, Christmas, but it might be New Year's before it's out. I'm holding a, a publisher's copy right now. It's uh, going to be Ken Patera, Weight of the World. Nice. That's a and, catchy title. Uh, yeah, good it has name. a picture of me on the front cover, my USA singlet with, uh, it looks like the Mid-Atlantic uh, Heavyweight Championship belt around my waist. I have a, a red singlet on and my red uh, jumpsuit on. And uh, let's see, I'm my natural hair color. And uh, it says not for resale, not for resale, not for resale, right across the front. Can you believe that? (laughs) I can't even sell my own fucking book. Jeez. Just take a Sharpie and cross that out and sell the damn thing, right? Yeah. Yeah, but on the inside somewhere, I'm going to have my old saying, uh, win if you can, lose if you must, but always cheat. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. But I didn't start cheating until I was a bad guy in pro wrestling. I didn't really cheat then, you know. You didn't cheat. You were just misunderstood. The the referees were always at the wrong angle. That's right. That's a good way to say it. <laughs> or they were just incompetent, one or the other. Yeah, I think they were incompetent. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so that's it. That's great. Again, I, I can't thank you enough for your time. Uh, this is, I mean, our 100th episode. We wanted it to be a big one. We wanted it to be legendary, as it were, and you delivered on every front. These are great stories, and, and I know everyone's going to love hearing them. Hit it out of the I'll park. Think, That's my baseball well, reference, they, Dan. The what? I, no, I I always come up with a baseball reference. I said you hit this one out of the park. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, I, I, I think the people, uh, especially the older fans, they'll really enjoy it. Yeah, well, absolutely. The younger ones, yeah, the younger kids, they'll. They're uh, smart enough to pro wrestling nowadays, you know, with all the TV and everything. You know, they can look up Ken Patera and find out what a hero I was. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Or a heel, I mean. (laughs) 
I think I think at this point in history they they're both good words. Absolutely. Oh yeah, yeah, I think so. Yeah, yeah, we can do this again if you'd like. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, give it uh, three months, six months, a year, whatever, and uh, we do it again. Yes, sir. That'd be great. And when the uh, I'm I'm looking forward to the book when that comes out. We'll definitely promote it on the page as well. And that's just I mean I I can't imagine what kind of stories you snuck in there. So, well, I didn't talk too much trash on anybody because you know I just I I had no need to. Uh, But it's a good book. If if the book is anything like it was tonight. It, it, it's going to be a, a, a blockbuster. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I think it'll sell good. Absolutely. Yeah. Okay, guys. Absolutely. Thank you again, sir. Have a, ha, we have a wonderful evening, and we appreciate everything you did for to make this show that much more special. Well, thank you. I appreciate it. I enjoyed doing it. All right. And have a great Christmas. Yes, sir. Yeah, you too. Happy New Year. Thank you. Thank you, sir. Okay. Okay, guys. Thank you. Bye-bye. Take Take care. Bye. Benny, episode 100, could we, I mean, you can't write, and I I know it sounds cliche, but you couldn't write a script better than this episode went tonight. I I mean, for for months and months and months, I thought, man, you know, if we ever make it to episode 100, like, what's it going to be like? And in my wildest dreams, it it couldn't have been better than this. I mean, this is phenomenal. I, I just... I mean, we were, it was at two hours and it just flew. And yeah, it, at, at no point does it feel, I mean, this is our longest episode ever. And at no point does it feel like that. And I know the listeners are going to feel the same. And it's just, I mean, it's such a, a wonderful feeling and it was a great time. And I mean, really a hundred episodes, we, we, we have our active fan page. I mean, everything is, is, you know, outward and upward, as I say, we're, we're, we're moving. We've got regular listeners in, in multiple countries. Uh, it's just, it, it's, it's crazy. You know, we, when we spun off and, and, and started this now two years ago, I, I couldn't have imagined it get this far. I thought, okay, you know, Benny and I will do it for some fun. We'll, we'll see where it goes. And, and here we are there's and, and there's still demand and there's still room for growth. And now we just episode 100 taught, I mean, with with somebody that we've both been fans of for many years. I mean, me literally my whole life. You maybe maybe a hair longer because you know you're only slightly older than I am. A little bit, yeah, yeah. But I mean, yeah, we have guests booked actually through I think the end of January and really really good guests. Yeah. So we we you know we're gonna keep going. Yep, and we've got like I said, we've got the the holidays coming up and and just it, i it's it's almost it's humbling too how much fun it's been like it doesn't feel uh the work that's gone i mean we, we we both put a lot of work into the show and it just doesn't feel like work it's just so entertaining to do and and so thanks to everyone out there episode 100 we we're you know here's to 100 more and we'll keep moving on so for uh ken patera and and the legend that is his career for the BS Express himself, Benny Scala. I'm Dan Spasciano. Have a good night, everyone, and we will see you next time we're in the ring.